Good day, good day, everyone, and welcome to today's webinar, the fourth in a series of educational presentations through the Racial and Social Justice Initiative being presented by COSADA. We welcome our members and our colleagues to today's important conversation, and thank you to all who have submitted your questions in advance. We're going to get to your questions throughout this webinar, and they will remain anonymous. We appreciate you joining us today. As a reminder, the webinar will be posted later today on COSADA.com with a link to COSADA's YouTube channel. And we've also, we will also have this as a podcast and you will be able to download it from the services listed on cosada.com. As I've mentioned, we do have questions submitted already and we're looking forward to receiving others. Please use the chat box, which you'll find on the right side of the portal and we will save time during the webinar and at the end of this webinar to address them. All questions will remain anonymous. Today's guests on this webinar really need no introduction, but joining me today are Dr. Elise Ali Joseph, the faculty athletic representative from Northern Arizona. Tom Bowen, the president and founder of Bellwether Athletic Leadership Strategy Company, LLC. And Dr. Victoria Ferris, the social justice, social justice consultant, speaker and coach of Ferris Consulting, LLC. I hope each of you are well and thank you for joining us for this professional development initiative for COSADA. Thank you, Travis. Just so everybody knows, we'll begin the webinar with a question for each of our panelists with each having a chance to answer, and then we'll start the conversation so we continuously do it throughout the time allotted. We'll also have questions from the audience again. If you'll submit your questions in the chat feature, we will try our best to answer each one of them. Let's start like this. We'll give a definition of allyship, which the NCAA Inclusion Office has defined the word, and then we'll just go from there. Allyship is an effective and powerful intentional practice of using power and privilege to achieve equity and inclusion. College athletics is a diverse landscape and communicators can play a crucial role towards creating an inclusive environment. Strategies on how to be an effective ally within your athletic department and across the college athletics landscape will be discussed today. We'll start this way and, and at least we'll start with you and then everyone can answer this question. What's the first step in becoming an effective ally? Well, thank you, Travis. Halito. Hello, everyone. And thank you to my fellow panelists and everyone logging in today. It's, it's an honor to share this space with you and talk about this really important topic. So I first just want to want to say that at this time of really heightened inequality, uh, racial and social inequality, it's really important to understand and acknowledge that although some of us are becoming aware of this and it's new to many of us, that it doesn't mean that for for those who have been treated harshly um, who have been discriminated against who are who are seemed in a marginalized community that this is new for them and so i think it's really important to acknowledge that that although this is new for many of us those who have been in the mix of it treated treated harshly in marginalized groups it's it's nothing new and so that's why allyship is so incredibly important the the solidarity and the liberation uh, with those who are being mar marginalized. And so for allyship, you know, allyship is not a label. Um, I, I believe it's not an identity. It's a process and it's a journey. And it really begins with looking internally, with self-reflection and acknowledging our own privileges, our own implicit biases, right? And just to be clear, a privilege um, can, be defined as an under benefit or advantage in, in society based on our own social identities. And then an implicit bias basically is an 
unconscious belief or attitude towards a social group. And this usually leads to uh, racial, social, sexualized um, stereotyping. And so it's really important to, to look within ourselves um, and do work internally before we can actually become, um, you know, an active participant in allyship. With that being said, and I'm sure the panelists will uh, elaborate on this as well, but the second step in that journey, and you know, it could be occurring at the same time as education. And I'm a professor in Applied Indigenous Studies at Northern Arizona University. So my whole world really is about deconstruction of what we've learned in school or what we learn through the media of Indigenous people. And so when I talk about education, it's really about uneducating ourselves or deconstructing the education that we've previously learned really all our lives. Um, and then re-educating ourselves, re-educating ourselves with books, with conversations, with podcasts, with what's going on within our contemporary communities. And, you know, I think it's still aligning with what's been happening with this heightened awareness of social justice is we do have many, many resources at our disposal. Um, and so the time is gone when we can't say, well, how am I going to learn about this, right? How am I going to educate myself? And so it's it's very, very important. And is that deconstruction and that, you know, relearning education, is that going to be difficult? Probably. Is it going to be hard? Probably. But is it, necessary in the steps of allyship definitely it definitely is a necessary step in becoming a proactive effective ally so i will leave it at that and let my fellow panelists take thank you dr joseph and tom your thoughts well i think from my standpoint it, it's been a it's a it's it, i agree with dr elise in that it's a process but really it, it really is it becomes a core value it becomes a passion it has to be something you're very passionate about you have to be in tune with what's taking place in athletics, whether you're an assistant AD, associate AD, or I spent 17 and a half years as a division one AD at two major universities, and it has to be part of your being. It has to be something you care about and look towards and look for. It has been going on for quite a long time. And now in this time and age, we have opportunities to do extraordinary things that we didn't have the kind of resources we had at the time. But I have so many colleagues and so many athletic directors that I was working with and worked around and for who made it a point to put it as part of their their passion of what they believed in. And in and then it becomes not only what you say, but your work and what you do inside your organizations to create that fundamental base that we are allies for everyone in the organization to have opportunity, to have opportunity to succeed, to have opportunity to do amazing things and to really let people become the best they can be. And you do that by intentionally building a framework around the passion to say that the injustices are not going to be part of this organization. The marginalization of our people, our students, or our student athletes, or our organization structure is not going to be part of that. And by doing that, you create a synergy that becomes part of a trust factor that builds. So being a good ally is saying to everyone in the, in the organization, we're all allies together. It's not just because you get in a position of leadership, you've got to become an ally. It should be a part of your core value. It should be something so passionate that you're about because if you're in a position of privilege, like I have had the opportunity, then I absolutely, per my gospel training, per my being, per who I am, have the responsibility to be an absolutely effective ally. 
And that's what I've done throughout my career. And that's what I've done now in my private sector business, meeting with chancellors and presidents and athletic directors to empower them to, to see it as a passion and action, not just speaking and presentation. It's got to be action. You have to make a difference. Then I have. Look, throughout my career, all the great young men and women who've worked for me are now in leadership positions throughout Division One Athletics. Thanks, Tom. Victoria? Oh, so many great things already. I would just add, um, kind of building on the, the some things that, that my colleagues have both said already, but I think if we're thinking about one of the first things to do, I, I really love, Elise, how you described waking up and um, I think a pause is really necessary because so often some, and even in my own experience, the most harm I've caused has been in those moments where all of a sudden a light has gone on for me and I've gone and tried to shout about the light or do something about the light. And, and all of a sudden folks around me are like, girl, this light has been on for 400 years. So I'm not sure where you've been. Right. And then I feel shame and I want to retreat and I'm like, forget it, forget it, forget it. Um, but if we pause, um, I think that's an essential sort of first step to pause and recalibrate and get a sense of things and then doing your own work, right? Really understanding the context to which we're learning and waking up, um, recognizing my role in it, um, and really um, kind of building some meaningful understanding before taking action. I think um, another form of or manifestation of white privilege is is sort of the innate um, action taking. Um, and, and when we take action without first having context and pause is, is often a time where we're causing harm, even if our intentions are the best of intentions. Um, and, and Tom, I really loved what you were talking about, about passion and action. Um, I often say that allyship has consequences. So if you're a person who says, I'm an ally, um, but you've not yet ever had somebody dislike you or push back, or you've been subtly, quietly taken off of a committee you post you have or, um, you know, people unfriend you on Facebook or whatever, right? If there's no consequences, um, I would put my money on the fact on the fact that you're not actually um, engaging in meaningful allyship. Um, what it means to leverage our privilege means that we are using it and with that comes consequences. Um, and so I don't mean again to like just go bulldoze, but I mean the recognition comes with, um, it's just like if, if I said, you know, somebody paid me more money for this than they paid somebody else. So we're going to be, we're going to make it equal. That means I might lose a little for somebody else to gain a little. Right. And that's what allyship really looks like. And I don't just mean in the dollars and cents place, but I mean, sometimes it means I give up my seat at a table in order to make sure that somebody better suited to sit at the table is there. Thank you to each of you for answering that question. Let me say this before we go to the next, the next question. Um, each of you bring up great points and for somebody like me that works at a, an HBCU and I've chosen to work at an HBCU as a white male for the last six years, um, you talk about the education, Dr. Jo at least you talk about being educated and, and you need to, to make sure that you're aware of where you are, what you do. Tommy, you bring up a great point about the privilege. Um, if I can't use the privilege I've got to get, you know, to get to become allies with people, not just here, but across the country. You know, and, and then Victoria, you talk about the light going off. The light went off for me probably four or five hours after the, the first incident happened when I got a text from one of my very good friends who's a, a director of athletics at a school in Tennessee, and he's he's an African-American male, and we had a, a three-and-a-half-hour conversation. Um, but again, you, the biggest thing is when you say, 
uh, being quietly taken off committees, people the the being hit with things. All you have to do is look at social media. Look how many people unfriend you. Look how many people unfollow you. Um, I think I, you know, I don't even use Facebook any anymore. But I made one post and I lost 200 people, which was fine with me because I wanted to get a point across. Um, and the point across is me being a white male in an HBCU. Don't come and and talk about we need to do this, we need to do that. No, we need to listen, we need to empower, we need to have a sense of empathy. And that's how you become an ally. Sitting and listening, um, I, the, the best phrase I can use is God gave you two ears and one mouth and he did that so you could have more to listen with. Um, with that being said, Tom, I'm gonna put a question right in your wheelhouse um, sure. because I know your background. What can someone in communications do to help create an inclusive environment if they are not a part of the senior staff? Well, I, I think um, in communication right now, it's such critical time because of the sensitivity of the subject we're talking about today and all that continues to take place as of what happened just in Florida a couple of days ago. So you have, you have this continual process. People in communication and athletics and working in, the, in, in our departments and our organizations have to feel that they have a voice that can be um, shared, not necessarily listened to and then and then let you know the the hierarchy move it up too often we have a structure where it's a pinnacle of so the athletic director deputy athletic director senior associate executive senior associate associate assistant director and and so this 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 tyranny dynamic takes place where sometimes messaging doesn't get up it doesn't get it get forward so it's important as as i was director of athletics and it's important as now in my consultations of other leadership positions in athletics to say it's your responsibility to have an ability to have unfiltered information fly all the way through the organization and people in communication should have the confidence that they are going to be able to say the uncomfortable or talk about the things that are tension or or, or a little um, uncomfortable and, and could cause public outcry and yet at the same time it's important to have that so that you're on top of it the instantaneous dynamic in communication right now for things to become a, a national regional local story it's really critical that people in communication have the confidence and the support and the ability to talk about whatever subject, whatever matter, without having to go through a filtering process to get it to the leadership side of whatever that's going to be. So if some, some of my colleagues use a deputy athletic director to be the stop. Some people use, you know, people that oversee sports information and oversee that piece. And I would say the new approach should be, given what's going on in our, in our communities and given what's going on, should be the athletic director should know everything all the time. I made it a point that wherever I've been, whether you guys might know the infamous Lawrence Fan, who might be the greatest SID in the, in the world, was my guy. And he had direct access to me at San Jose State my entire nine years there. Didn't matter. Didn't matter what it was, what time it was, didn't matter. Now, he didn't report to me every day, but he had access to me because we were creating a culture that we were going to be transparent, we were going to be inclusive, and we were going to do what we could do. There were many, many uncomfortable things happen. I had a lot of people send me nice little email notes and voicemails that I saved just when I start feeling important. I just want to play these voicemails with people to get mad about my decisions. But at the end of the day, that's how it has to be. People in communication have to feel comfortable to be able to walk into any situation or because what usually happens is it, it doesn't, it just uncovers itself. It just falls in some people's laps sometimes. Sometimes a situation or, or an information or something just happens. And they're forced to have to say, okay, and where do I go with this? And then you shouldn't have to have that conversation. It should be, okay, great, I'm going right to this person and we're going to deal with this right now and we're going to be transparent and we're all going to know about it. 
Now, that also has to have an environment of trust because you don't want it leaking out through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, but you have the ability to have that kind of built-in system. You will always be uh, having great rapport with your senior leadership team, your communication staff, your director of communications, and with the university's communication staff as well. Victoria? Well, first, I won't pretend to have expertise in, in athletics. Um, my expertise is in white people. Uh, my research is on a role white folks can play in disrupting systems of racism. And so um, thank you, Tom. I won't try to get into th that nitty gritty, but what I'll say is, um, and this might fall in the category of unpopular opinions or, or unpopular things to say, but the, the reality is that um, as a white person, I have no shortage of reasons to not engage in allyship, right? So often I think my work, especially as a facilitator, is in like, um, it almost feels like a, a pinball game where like I'm constantly trying to bring the balls back into the court, right? Because we want to deflect and we want to push. And, and so often people will say, well, I don't have any power in the organization, so there's nothing I can do. And I just think that all of that is a cop out, right? Um, the way you talk to your kids decides if you're an ally. The way you talk to um, your community members, the way you talk to the person ringing you up for groceries, right? The way we engage with anybody is a measure of, of our engagement and our commitment to um, more inclusivity, right? And so regardless of where you're at in the hierarchy, um, you have you have an important role and you have a far more power um, in your sphere of influence that you recognize. And you have me at the word communication, right? So much about equity and inclusion is rooted in language. Um, and so if you're using inclusive language, you've already um, made a tremendous impact, right? Knowing um, the difference between person of color or BIPOC or black or indigenous, um, you know, queer versus homosexual, right? If we're using language that is inclusive, um, that makes a tremendous impact. So um, I'll leave it to my colleagues to get into the the, the athletics details. Um, but I, I wanna um, always draw back to the fact that allyship is a choice. It's a choice made moment to moment, situation to situation, day to day, um, and we all get to choose. So if we're not actively choosing to engage as an ally, then we are actively choosing not to. Um, there's no neutrality here, right? There's no, like, I'm just going to sit back and let other people do it. That is me saying it's not important. Elise? Yeah, that's a great point that I, I think I'll build off of. If When you say we're not actively participating in allyship, we're actively not participating in allyship. And I think in today's day and age, um, as I mentioned before, that we have to take that responsibility and we have to become aware that if we aren't doing it, we are doing something else. For example, we're becoming actors in racial, marginalized, discriminatory actions, right? If we're not coming to the table and speaking up about it, um, it's it's going to continue. And so as far as athletics, as what Tom said, I think that, you know, we have to see in the athletic world today that we all are leaders whether we're sitting at the senior staff table or not, if we're an entry level, if we're in communications, we are all leaders and our student athletes and our communities depend on us. And so I just, you know, um, reiterate that, that just because you don't, you don't have that title, that doesn't mean that you can't be an active, engaged participant in the athletic department and decision-making when it comes to um, equality 
and access issues. And so once we, you know, have that self-reflection, once we begin to, to educate ourselves, a suggestion that I would have is to go to, to that senior staff and acknowledge the work that you've been doing and acknowledge the work that you you see that needs to be done, whether it's in the athletic department, you know, a specific example of hiring practices, for example, or whether it's outside of athletics, whether it's connecting with a local community, whether it's seeing the student athletes that you're working with on your teams having, you know, difficulties, um, or whether you're seeing the student athletes want to do something more. And so I think you can go to your senior staff with either specific examples of you know, things that you see that are difficult within the athletic department or things from a positive note that you see are happening that you want to build upon. Um, and then I think if, if you don't, you know, if, if unfortunately you don't have any success there and I'm hoping that you will, and I'm hoping that the senior staff, at least one person is, is listening, right? Um, I would suggest go to your, your colleagues, um, go to your faculty athletic representative, right? Always plug in there. Um, go to, we have a new position on campus that it's called the Athletic Diversity Inclusion Designee, where every institution within the NCAA has to have someone designated to work on diversity inclusion issues and programming. Um, so learn who that person is on your campus. They could be inside athletics. Um, hopefully they're outside of, of athletics, but if not, that's okay. So learn who that person is and build those relationships both inside of athletics and outside of athletics on your campus. Victoria, we'll go to you with this one. Um, and I know you've got a, we've got a slide prepared because this day and age, student athletes have a voice bigger than they've ever had. Um, what are some tips for communicators to be able to bridge that? Because these student athletes are still students. But what are some of those tips? And then we'll get to your, your slide here in a minute. But what are some tips for communicators when bridging that allyship with the student athletes? You know, um, the first thing I just want to sort of really underscore what you just said about student athletes, because I think um, higher ed overall, right, we have a hierarchy that often places students at the bottom. Um, and I think that collectively, higher ed has been very slow to recognize the collective power of students. Um, and I think, um, as we've all seen, right, um, often to our own demise, when we're underestimating the, the power that our students have, um, I, I think it's a real mistake. So, um, you know, I think student athletes in particular are recognizing that collectively they have a real opportunity to help shape a, a university, an athletics department, or, you know, an experience within their own team. Um, and, and quite frankly, I hope that they'll continue to leverage that because I think it's demanding a change, institutional change that we haven't seen demanded in the same ways otherwise. Um, but I, I think the best way when we think about bridging allyship in any context, I think the best way to um, to show your allyship is to be about it, right? You don't have to tell someone you're an ally when your actions constantly demonstrate that, right? You know, the, the students will say they wanna see the receipts, um, right? They want, our actions show our allyship. We, we shouldn't need to, to say it. Um, and I think sometimes it takes a little bit of connecting. So if you don't have a direct relationship um, with students, for example, or you want to build that, there are ways to do it and you can reach out and ask questions. But I'd be really mindful. I think this goes back to the pause 
um, of recognizing how we show up into there. There's a big difference between going to a group of students and saying, I'm going to be your ally, <laughs> right? And going in and saying, hey, can I sit with y'all for a little bit this afternoon? Because I'd really like to listen and learn some more and see how I can best support you know, X, Y, or Z. Um, and, and humility is a, an essential component to allyship. I mean, um, humility is, you know, I just, every time I think I've learned it, I find a new way of learning uh, that I still have more to learn and what it means to truly be humble. Um, and so I think we have the slide here is, um, like I said, my research is about the role that white folks can play. So when people often say to me, just tell me what to do to be an ally and I'll do it. Um, which number one, I think uh, folks have been telling us forever, black folks, indigenous folks for 400 years, just if we all were stopped being racist, we would uh, not have the, the issues that we have. But, you know, I think it, it's um, still kind of abstract. So this is the model that I've put together um, based on my research about how to be an effective ally or accomplice. And it starts here with doing your own work. Um, and so that's where, when I said the pause, to me, that's the pause. That's the listening, that's the learning. Um, interrogating our own assumptions, that's some of the implicit bias stuff that Elise mentioned early on. Seeking to understand is about really appreciating and understanding the impact of both individual um, harm, but also systems of violence and systems of marginalization and the impact they have. Recognizing your role is really appreciating the way that I participate in the system. And the reality is that everyone participates in the system, but white people participate in a disproportionate way that benefits us. And this goes to that point that we were just addressing about no neutrality, right? If I'm not actively disrupting the system, then I'm actively participating in it, even if I am just sitting as a bystander, that's that's active. Um, and then the U is about taking action. And so you can see the U is a little further down because if we're not taking informed action, we're often um, showing up um, causing harm or from maybe a, a desire to save or rescue, which is also not allyship. Um, partnering with peers is about engaging with other white people. So I really liked what my colleagues were talking about when we're saying, you know, go to senior leaders, reach out to your colleagues, reach out to faculty. Um, it, the reality is that many of us in, are in spaces that are exclusively other white people. And we tend to not talk about race and identity in those spaces. So we'll bring it up in a space that's a, a mixed space because then somebody will say like, thank you so much for doing that. But when it's in the all white spaces that it really starts to matter, that's when we really leverage our access to those spaces where we engage with each other. Um, so partnering with peers is really, you know, saying to your colleague, like, I hear what you just said there. And I wonder what the impact might've been if there was, you know, one of our black student athletes in the room to hear you say that. And so here's a way I might say that differently or help me understand what you mean and really engaging with one another. Uh, the T is at the end just because that's the way the word gets spelled, um, but humility is just essential. And so the thing I'll say about this model is that it's not linear and you, there's no checkbox at the end. Every day, and I do this work full time, this is my living, every day there's a place where I'm like, I'm back to the D because I've learned something, I've peeled back a layer and I'm back to doing my own work, listening to a new podcast, reading a new book, um, going to a talk or lecture, whatever that might be. Um, so I can kind of keep building on my work. Elise, when we talk about this and we talk about the, the tips that we can use to bridge the allyship with student athletes, talk about resources because you're, you're still in the education field, you're a former student athlete, but talk about the resources there that 
will help communicate with these student athletes and, and build the allyship with the student athletes. Right. So, I mean, there's so many resources and one I would say that we could all definitely get involved with in athletics or on campus is SAC, Student Athletic Advisory Committee. And so actively engaging in our student athlete leaders on campus, going to the meetings, listening to what the issues that they're talking about, because if you ever, ever sat in a SAC meeting, I mean, they, at least for me, very transparent, they're very open about their wants and their needs um that are, are justified right at this day and age and so actively engage with your SAC leaders and i think you can learn a lot and grow a lot from just sitting in the room and dialoguing with them um, the other thing that i would mention is so you know ask questions too ask again what i always go back in that the diagram you know, um, Victoria is great. Once we are, you know, continuing to do our self-work, educating ourselves, ask questions. Um, and, but also acknowledge that it's really not the responsibility of whoever we're asking the question, whether it be a student athlete, a coach, a community member, it's not their responsibility to teach you, right? They, it, you know, so be aware of the answer that they might give, might not be the one that you're expecting. Um, but might be one where you can say, okay, you know, that's something that maybe I need to look into further. And so aside from the student athlete, you know, is, is if, we, if your SAC has a diversity inclusion officer, you know, talk with them, what are, what are you doing? How can I be um, in alliance with you on these, on these initiatives? Um, and I mentioned too previously the ADID, the Athletic Diversity Inclusion Designee, and I'm so excited. I, I serve on the Minority Opportunity and Interest Committee that actually generated this position. Um, and so it's it's very brand new, but I think it's going to be amazing. And so, as I mentioned before, meet with that person on your campus and talk about, you know, what ideas, what are you doing within with, for, with student-athletes, for student-athletes, to ensure equity and inclusion within the athletic department and make sure that the student athlete voices are heard. Um, another thing I would mention is to use a more resilient approach to language. Don't use that deficit approach to language. For example, you know, my, my work works with a lot of indigenous and native student athletes. And so I hear a lot of people say, well, why aren't there more native student athletes? There's so few, right? Turn that around. What can we do to bridge the gap between indigenous communities and higher education to empower more native athletes to pursue a sport they love in college, right? So use that more positive, resilient approach to language rather than the deficit approach. And I think that goes a long way with our student athletes. Um, because I think just in the language and the type of language and the delivery that we use, that's that's a form of allyship as well. Um, being a you know a positive, proactive partner and ally um, in in their goals and their aspirations. Tom, I know we asked the question about student athletes, but I want you to touch on the the bridging the gap between student athletes, not just student athletes, but coaches as well. Well, as far as, you know, creating the resources, I, I, I think the, the bridging the gap is real critical if you can begin to understand that we continue to do this over the last 16 years. And now there's an acceleration that's taken place. It wasn't happening 
the Student Athletic Advisory Council, both national and at every university in Division One, Division Two, and Division Three, has been a, a, a model, and I agree with Dr. Elise, it's been in a model that's been allowed for a free-flowing, very frank, very opportunity. Uh, as my time as athletic director, I went to SAC meetings, you go to SAC meetings, we made senior staff go to SAC meetings, so you could hear firsthand from the student athletes in our institution what exactly was going on. That started an initiatives that have now over the last four or five, six years have come forward in para, in hours of practice, in how we, how, your, your whole experience. And as that starts to envelope itself into a momentum, now we have the uh, ability to continue that momentum into, I like Dr. Elise's thought of positive language. I like the idea of creating more opportunities to have resources for diverse, uh, diversity officers, inclusion opportunities, inclusion programs. All that continues to move through. It starts with our student athletes. It moves into our coaching staffs. It moves into training, moves into opportunities. It moves into head coaches having the ability to get an opportunity to see what it means to create diversity, see what it means to create inclusion, to change language, to change opportunity. Then all that momentum is taking place. Uh, I would say that I've been very encouraged in the last year and a half that I've been out basically, you know, working with as many universities as I can who have all adapted some form of a new process, a new new resources, new positions, new hires, new de, uh, uh, delineation of how to go about creating this this positive movement towards uh, creating a, a, what we call allyship. We could call it, you know, just the, the ability to start taking full blow support into creating diversity and, and try to eliminate marginalization. And I think that has been really strong. It's taking place in a lot of universities are doing really good work. And they should be commended for that. And some universities are, are a little behind. But at the end of the day, because of this webinar, maybe there's people out there that are going to go back to their leadership and say, hey, I went to a webinar and I talked to, I heard Dr. Victoria and I heard Dr. Elise and I heard Travis and I heard this other knucklehead. And he was saying, well, we're going to do the good things. So let's do good things. I mean, really and truly, the message is let's don't 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 stand still. Dr. Victoria's right. Don't stand still. There's no neutrality. So let's do good things. Let's change our world. Let's make it better. Why not? Speaking of that, I know we had a lot of questions that we were going to go over, but there's some really great questions coming from the audience right now. Let's answer this question real quick. Um, and I may be able to help on this as well. Can you share with the group the value that intentional storytelling has played in allyship? I think it's good for our attendees to hear from others the positive impact of stories on athletic departments and making a difference. And that's that the floor is open to anybody. I, I mean, I think storytelling is is essential, um, but I think we um, we need to the, another place to pause and and ask whose stories, right? Mm -hmm. But but the way we build empathy and the way we learn and understand is by listening to stories, um, and so I think when we're centering the stories of our student athletes or our colleagues, I think we can't we can't minimize the fact that it's not only student athletes who are experiencing marginalization in our athletic departments. Um, that uh, we're listening to the stories and perspectives and we're um, really unpacking and pausing before we have a reaction because oftentimes I hear folks say, well, I hear th that that's your experience, but, um, but I haven't had that experience. So then it must just be a one-off. Um, we, we like to um, sort of find ways to minimize the impact of what somebody's sharing. So I think storytelling is really essential. And I think a lot of the self-work comes in how we receive the stories. But I also think that there's a really unnecessary and important role in 
modeling allyship also, right? The idea of perfectionism is rooted in white supremacy. It's not real. And, and it just perpetuates silence because we're all so afraid of making a mistake. And when I say we all, I'm saying white people, right? I'm so afraid of making a mistake that I stay quiet um, and so again, I, I ask like, what, what's your intention there? What's more important, my, the facade of my perfection or uh, being an active change agent and an active ally? But I think we need to model for each other how to make mistakes with humility, how to have these conversations, how to have them again, privately, but also publicly. I think sometimes we're having them on, on the internet, but we're not having them in our conference rooms. and that's not useful. We're not having them around the dinner table, right? Um, and so I think storytelling is essential. And now I'll be quiet. Let me, before either, you know, at least before you were Tom go, let me, let me chime in on this as a, as a fellow communicator. We've done some different things this summer um, when we went into the pandemic where we really couldn't be out, couldn't do things. Um, and you see all the, the injustices going on around the country and around the world. We started a podcast um, instead of typing the story. We wanted to tell the story. So we let them tell, we let former student athletes, former coaches, current coaches, current student athletes, administrators tell their story in their own words. Um, and Victoria, to your point, you know, people get quiet because they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing, make a mistake. We had an unscripted part in every podcast where we said, what is today's world meant to you when you go back and look at what has happened? And you would be surprised at the stories that come out just people that will, will want to say things. And this is a, for me, it was a way to, to bridge the gap between the old and the new, to bring former student athletes in with the new generation, because the new generation may not understand that these student athletes that were here 15, 20, 30 years ago went through the same things, but they were quiet because there were no phones, there was no social media, there was no news coverage of, of what was going on. So we let them tell their story and you would be amazed at how many views and, and listening listeners you get just from letting former student athletes tell their stories. You don't always have to type it. Sometimes it's best just to let them tell it because you can't. Some of the stories that we've had told to us, if I typed it, I couldn't do it justice. Mm -hmm. um, so we let them. And, and that's the one thing when we ask that question, that's the one thing that we don't we did not edit. We did not mess with. We didn't try to change the front to the back, the back to the front. We let that recording go and some of them we did live and it just catches you off guard and, and you know we had student athlete former student athletes in tears telling their story um but at the same time again as a white male in an hbcu you have to sit there and listen you have to show the empathy you have because you we've never walked in their, anybody's shoes and i think that's the biggest question is well i've never been in your shoes how do i know well the easiest way to do that is to just go sit in a room and listen ask a question sit there whether it's five minutes whether it's two hours and just listen and tell the story i can share those are all uh, wonderful points and of course in my word storytelling is, is exceptionally key um and i think victoria what you said is is you know whose story is it because for so i mean for hundreds and hundreds of years the, it's been the story of the oppressor it's this false narrative right and so i don't want to be a downer but i i think too when we ask our student athletes to tell their story we have to be cautious too 
right? It could be very uncomfortable. It could be triggering. Um, it could even be a form of tokenism, right? And so we have to be careful that we're not saying, oh, you're the only Asian American on the team or you're the only indigenous person on the team. Tell your story and that's gonna, that's gonna solve all our problems. We had this one story on there, now it's done, right? We're inclusive, we're diverse. Um, and so I think it's really important to acknowledge that and that once that story is told, right, is to have a follow-up, have a conversation after that story has been told, unpack what that person is talking about, have a dialogue, have a talking circle, um, maybe among your staff, among the student athletes. So don't let that story just be a story, let it be impactful and let it have a, you know, a life after it actually comes comes out. Um, because I think that, you know, the tokenism and, and the whatnot is a real thing for some of our student athletes who, um, you know, today have, of course, all these responsibilities of being a student and an athlete. And then now, you know, having a responsibility to carry the elephant of racial and social justice on their back because they're the only one or they're, you know, and so it's, it's, it's extremely important. Um, and I would say just as a positive thing that's happening. So at NAU, we've started a, it's called Student Athletes for Social Alliance Group. And it's not really part of the SAC, but it's, it's generated out of conversations with SAC where uh, we want to have dialogue and we want to talk about racial and social injustices. And it could be within our community, it could be within our teams, it could be within our athletic department. So we've had one, kind of a talking circle where the six student athletes got together and we just had a dialogue on Zoom, people could log in. And we're building off of that where tonight actually we're having coaches come in and the student athletes are, are asking their coaches pretty tough questions um, about racial and social just injustice. And so we're planning to build off of that of now then talking with, with administrators and I think it would be very vital to talk to SIDs and communicators within our campus because um, you're there telling the stories in essence. And so I think that's a, a positive thing that's that's happening where we can tell our stories, but then also um, continue to continue that conversation after the story's told. Um. Well, I, you know, storytelling has been a part of uh, a real uh, wonderful way of engagement that coaches have used for a long time. And you've seen it done in teams when, you know, they get together and they have their, their it's kind of like their chance to just bear their souls and, and be together as a team. I think it's very profound when it takes place in a student athlete setting or it takes place where you can tell it, not necessarily write it or read it. I think stories told are the most powerful things that people do because they share their emotion, they share their feelings, their passion, their hurt, their pain, their joy. All that comes in. In it's very effective. I, everybody I've been working with, I've told them that you you can't have enough storytelling right now. You can't have enough engagement because you're going to have to build an inclusionary system of trust inside your organization, inside your student athletes, inside your coaching staffs, and inside the organization that leads. Higher education right now is kind of all over the map with how they're trying to reorganize, but college athletics is still moving forward. Student athletes are still competing, coaches are still coaching, and you still have this need, given all the unrest that's happening and continues to happen, to have storytelling, open conversations, frank conversations. I think it's great, Dr. Elise, that you are gonna have your coaches be asked hard questions because it gives them a chance to say what they think and feel, and people get to hear their story and hear their position. I, 
Right now, there's not enough communication. And I mean that you couldn't communicate enough right now to create, try to build some real synergy trust and some, some evolution into, into being together. You know, one of the things that happens in, in uh, Dr. Victoria Price knows this better than anybody, you get a silo effect that happens inside your organization or a silo effect happens inside an athletic department. It takes forever to get that thing unsiloed. And it depends on, and then pretty soon people choose sides. And before you know it, you got a, a whole disarray. And then there is no storytelling. Then there are always these accusations and fights and innuendos, and it never really comes back. So I think right now, communication among athletes, I know the athletic directors I've been working with and, and, and been involved with in their programs are actively doing all kinds of communication exercises, storytellings, engagements to have conversations to do things. And I think it's working. And I think you're seeing it in some programs. I mean, talk about a, a silo effect. Another question, and we'll put these two questions together from the audience. Uh, one is, how do you select a cause to support as there are so many of them that are out there, and but they're not all good? And on the flip side of that, how do you educate coworkers on the importance of allyship when they're just not used to it? You want me to answer that? Well, yeah, I, I, I think, I think you're not start supporting everything you want to support. I mean, you, you report to someone, you know, last time I checked, I'm not the president, so I couldn't, but as athletic director, we would always try to support things that we believe in that were uh, in our core values of, of, you know, heartfelt leadership and the 18 inches from my brain to my heart that matters and people would, would follow how that works and we would support things that made a difference in the lives of our students, student athletes, communities, underprivileged, mm -hmm. underserved, marginalized. And, and then we kind of had a pretty good effect that that was going to be approved at the higher levels of the institution. But at the end of the day, the institution itself has to decide what it's going to support and what it's not going to support. And in higher education, it gets real complicated because there's a lot of different opinions involved in who gets to decide what we support. So we always look for those things. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't I don't really know if you, there's a formula for it. I, I don't know if you could actually say to somebody, you can't support these things because maybe some, somebody might want to do that. So there's all kinds of innate freedoms of being a human being in the United States and allow you to support anything you want. So not really sure. I, 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 I'm not sure I'd answer how to answer that one. But Victoria, I'll come back to you because I know you're ready to answer. You were about ready to jump as soon as I asked the question. We'll go, Elise, we'll let you answer first and then we'll come back to Victoria. Okay. Yeah, I can build off what Tom just said about, um, I mean, it's hard, but I think to give an example. So at NAU, one of our strategic goals is to be the leading institution serving Native students and communities. And so, of course, um, as a FAR and a Native person and faculty, I push our athletic department to say, well, look at our strategic goal. What are we, what are you doing at a, as an athletic department to support this goal? Um, and so looking at your surrounding community, right? If you have a, a community around the university that has a high Native population, has a high Hispanic population, right? Engage in, in those that community because I think once we we see active engagement within our surrounding areas, maybe a lot of our student athletes come from those communities and populations that you can bridge that gap that that gap um, and create stories and programming that supports not only the university, not only the student athletes, but the community at large. And I think as an ally, that's a very important goal, right, to uh, to work towards is this, this all encompassing support. 
um, and how that, you know, it's a trajectory of working. It's not just a linear um, model, it's circular, right? So everything that we do impacts our student athletes, our, our community, et cetera. So I really like that example that Tom gave and that could be one that, you know, educate yourself where you are, whose land you are on, um, the communities that surrounding you, where your student athletes are coming from, um, their different identities, their different life and world experiences not, of not only them, but their parents, their grandparents, their communities. And so I think it's, it's very important to acknowledge that. Victoria? You called me out a little bit, Travis. I have, you know, I have a lot of opinions and I finally learned that being a consultant is really the perfect way to just get to be opinionated all of the time. <laughs> um, I actually had one more thought about the last question, which is what I was eager about, the storytelling question. Um, so just real quick, but I, I of course also have opinions on this question. Um, was some, I'm sorry, I don't remember which of you, who, who said it, but um, Elise about building trust and not tokenizing. And I, I think one of the really important things to remember is if all we're doing is listening to stories and sharing stories and not letting that inform our action moving forward, that that's how we erode trust and tokenize um, our student athletes. And so we build trust by doing something with the stories we hear. But the other thing I think is really important especially when we're in, in the, the business of getting to decide how stories get told and whose stories get told. And again, Elise, you talked about how historically, uh, right, the oppressor has been the storyteller, um, that we have to be really careful of confirmation bias. I, I uh, often when I'm facilitating, someone will say, well, so-and-so said microaggressions aren't really a thing and they're a person of color. So that means they're not a thing. And so it will, there will be, will be drawn to the one student athlete of color who says they've never experienced racism on campus, but we can't ignore the 20, 30, hundreds of others who are saying that they have. Um, and we, so we have to be really, or really careful to not tell a story that matches a stereotype. Like I think about, um, you know, all those sports movies that love to like show the underdog. Um, we have to just so constantly interrogate why we're drawn to a story and which ones we're elevating and why. So I, I that was just about that. Um, but I liked the question about how to choose an issue when there's so many and some aren't good. And, and that's the part that really jumped out to me about that question, because I think if we're staying true to justice and not issues, there is no good or, or bad, right? If, if what we're focused on is um, holistic student care, because I think it's really important to state that when we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it is a student athlete welfare issue. Racism right now is a student athlete welfare issue. And so that, that's not good or bad, and that's not an issue, and it's not trendy, it is student welfare. Um, just in the same ways where we want to make sure our student athletes are, are able to access the dining hall and have food, and when they're traveling, all of their needs are being met, um, you know, disrupting the racism that they're experiencing falls right along with all of their other core needs. So, um, and I think if we're staying true to justice and rights and, and holistic student wellness, it's hard to have even a president say, we're not gonna get behind that. Um, and quite frankly, this is where it means to leverage your privilege to really push back. Help me understand how this is political. Help me understand, because if we're strategic here, we're not doing issues-based sort of political, what's shiny and bright right now kind of work. We're doing holistic student care. 
Um, and it's very difficult for, for anybody to, to have a meaningful argument against that kind of work where it's rooted there. So I think how we tell our own stories about the work we're doing is essential to how we get um, folks on board. And again, where we need to really push and leverage sometimes. Um, and I think as far as bringing other colleagues in who maybe aren't familiar with allyship, um, you know, as, as a white person, I think part of my work as an ally is meeting other white people where they are and really pushing them forwards. Um, because it's not, it's not the weight of our colleagues of color to have to take on, or especially our student athletes of color to have to constantly be saying, look at this, this is a problem, right? We need to be engaging with each other. And that could be as simple as, I watched this webinar earlier about allyship. Are you familiar with the concept? You can you can literally find any way to start a conversation with someone and you could know darn well that they're not familiar with the concept and that they're causing harm. But I don't think walking into someone's office and saying, you know, that was really racist is the best way necessarily to do that white person, a white person. I would never police how a person of color disrupts that kind of behavior. Um, but I think that um, sometimes as we start to wake up, we then start to judge the white people who haven't quite woken up. Um, and I think that's a pattern we also have to be really careful of because um, that's, again, that's like a self-indulgent way to make me feel good. Like, like, see, I know more than this white person, which is just giving myself a pat on the back and not actually shifting any of the racist dynamics at play. So um, this is, I think, a really important part of the conversation is how do we bring our colleagues along as we just do, right? We bring it up at lunch. We bring it up. I, I mean, I know we're all working in very different ways right now. So how we do that looks different. Um, but I think we bring it up in small ways and in big ways and in, in you know, meetings and in casual conversations. And we share what we've learned. We share when we've made mistakes um, and really just kind of see that as part of our role is to pull our, our colleagues along. We've got about four or five more minutes. There's one question I wanna ask and I apologize for those of you that sent questions in if we're not gonna be able to get to them. Um, but in about four minutes, I want each of you to answer this question and tell me why. If you could define allyship in one word, what would it be and why? And anybody, at least if you want to start that, go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a tough one, but I, I think I would define it as relationships. Um, and I think it starts with the relationship we have with ourselves and our old, own worldview. Um, and then the relationship that we want to have with others, as Victoria just said, other maybe white people, um, other marginalized group of people, and how we want to move that forward. And, and I would just say that, um, you know, the, the two things that came to mind when you were speaking, and then to answer this question is intent versus impact. And we judge our we judge ourselves on our intent, but we judge others on their impact. So just to be very aware of that. Um, and then in those relationships, as, as Victoria, you just mentioned, is I think it's important to call people into the conversation, not call people out. And you just gave a, a wonderful example of that, of going to the office and say, you're racist, where that's probably not going to um, be very impactful, but call them into the conversation um, rather than calling them out. And so I think that if I can wheel it back to relationships, I think that definitely will um, see a relationship with ourselves and then our relationship with other people. Tom? I, I use the word core value because it's been a part of my life since I can remember. Um, I have a very interesting background that we don't need to go into. Some people know it, some people don't, but 
you know, uh, when I left, when I left, the, when I left religious life and left the priesthood, I began to work in college athletics and I kept committed to having the right core values and the right heart. And I've been a heart led leader my whole career. And I continue to do that. And this is a core value. This is Victoria's right. You can't, it can't be a neutral. It can't be something that you, you, it's gotta be part of you. And if it's part of you, then it's activated every day and everything that you do, everything that you think, everything that you say, every way that you interface with other people, the interface with your children, with your wife, with your communities, with everyone. It has to be a core value. If it's not a core value to be an ally to make a difference, then it won't happen because you can't just turn it on and off. And that's what Victoria was saying. And I agree hundred percent for it. So for me, it's always been a core value. And ironically, it's now probably the most prioritized core value we have right now because it matters a great deal right now to create healing in the United States and in our industry, period. So for me, the, the one word, I guess two words, core value, and you, it needs to become part of your part of your heart. And if it's part of your heart, it's part of your world. Victoria, we got about a minute and a half. Okay, um, this is hard, but I think I would say um, restoration. Because I think to me, I think about what the goal is and to and not what, what, what ally, ally Allyship is nothing if there isn't an end goal. And the, the end goal for me is about restoration. Um, but I mean that in a very deep way. I mean, restoration, uh, restoring our humanity uh, to a place that existed before systems of white supremacy were constructed and systems of power were constructed. And I think restoration on a community level, re re restoration on a global level, but also restoring ourselves. I think, Tom, what you just said about getting to your heart requires a restoration of our own humanity that requires healing too. Because this system from a very early age has indoctrinated us into a way of being that does strip us of our humanity. And, and it strips all of us of our humanity just in very different ways, depending on our racial identity. But I think we have to restore ourselves to get back to our heart and we have to be working towards meaningful restoration for our, our communities. I don't know what else I can I can say other than if you need any resources, our presenters here today will be glad to help you with that. There's also resources on the NCAA Inclusion website. Um, one quote, and I'll leave it at, at this um, before we close. If you and it's from Lilla Watson, an artisan and activist, and you can find this quote on the NCAA Inclusion Leadership Development page. If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because your liberation is bound to mine, then let us work together. Mm -hmm. Can't think of a better quote to, to end a, a panel on allyship on. We'd like to thank everyone for joining today's informative session and a big thank you to Dr. Elise, Ali Joseph, Tom Bowen, and Dr. Victoria Ferris. Their contact info is on there and it will be available on the COSADA website for your, your honest thoughts, your guidance, and your insights on today's topic. A reminder that you can find this on-demand webinar on COSADA.com later this afternoon. It will also be in a podcast format and will be on our COSADA YouTube channel. We'll all have the links for you on the COSADA.com website as well. Stay tuned for all of our upcoming racial and social, social justice initiative webinars and content, as well as other professional development content. Looking ahead to our next webinar, Tuesday, November 24th, we've joined with the United States Basketball Writers Association to hold a webinar called In the Pandemic, COSADA and the United States Basketball Writers Association discussion on basketball game day media and hosting guidelines. That will be at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern, and you can register on COSADA.com. Thank you again for joining us for this important conversation. And again, to Tom, Victoria, and Elise, 
thank you for taking time out of your day to really open eyes in this discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Travis.